If you want to open up your copy of Scripture to John chapter 13, we'll be resuming our study through John's great gospel. Now, if you, it's been a while since we've been in the gospel of John. We took a break. We looked at the five solas. We looked at faith alone, grace alone, all these great doctrines and truth. We took a short break to look at the book of Haggai the last couple weeks, and Andrew brought a great word from Hebrews chapter 1. But we come now to the Gospel of John, and we come to a very transitional point in John's Gospel. You'll remember we concluded last time with John chapter 12, and we came to the conclusion of what many call the book of signs, right? Through the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, we saw the 12 signs that John records in his Gospel testifying to who Christ is and what he came to do turning of water into wine, feeding 5,000 men miraculously with bread and loaves, right? Raising Lazarus from the dead, healing a man of blindness. All these things we saw in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel. But what we saw is that these miracles of our Lord were not in and of themselves an end, but they were meant to be pointers. They were meant to be signs of who Christ was. That He was not just a man that could perform miracles, that He was the Christ. He was the special anointed servant of the Lord promised in the Old Testament that had come in the flesh to save His people from their sins. But He was not just the Christ, He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate. The One who existed eternally, begotten of the Father eternally, who in the fullness of time took upon flesh and dwelt among us. The true bread from heaven, the one that came down, the true shepherd of Christ's sheep that lays down his life for his people, who is the resurrection and the life. And we read in John chapter 20, verse 31, that the whole point of John's gospel, the whole reason he recorded these signs is so that we might believe. <laughs> so that we might have saving faith in the person of work of Christ, that He is the Christ and that He is the Son of God. But what we saw at the close of John chapter 12 is that instead of belief, instead of new hearts of faith, instead of repentance, instead of the people coming to Christ, we saw at the end of John chapter 12 that Jesus is instead met with rejection, with hardness of heart, and with unbelief by his own people. And we see this summarized in John chapter 12, verse 37. John tells us that though Jesus had done so many signs before him, yet they still would not believe. Yet they still would not believe. And so we can see the parallels between the people of Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness and the people of Jesus' day. That just like the people of Israel in the wilderness, they, these people have hardened their hearts. They've ignored the signs that God has done in their midst. They've ignored the manna from heaven that God rained down. And instead of coming with belief and repentance, they grumble against the Lord and they have rejected their only hope of salvation. The people of the Old Covenant have rejected their Messiah. And so as we come to John chapter 13, we come to this sort of shift 
where before Jesus had a very public ministry, we now come to the second book of John's Gospel, often called the Book of Glory. And in chapters 13 through 17, we see Jesus leave his public ministry and begin his ministry among his disciples in the upper room. That Jesus has now formed this kind of new covenant community around himself. Focusing here on the last days and hours of our Lord's life, where before there was three years of earthly ministry, and the last chapters of John's Gospel, we'll see the final days and hours of our Lord's life as He approaches the cross, as He approaches His sacrificial death, and His subsequent revelation. But as we come to John chapter 13 through 17 in what many call the upper room discourse, we come to something that's actually unique to John's gospel. It's not recorded in this depth in any other gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And we see here what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin called a window into Christ's heart. A window into Christ's heart that nowhere else do we see this level of detail and intimacy between our Lord and the disciples. Chapter after chapter of intimate conversation with the disciples and with our Lord. We see him wash the disciples' feet. We see them he, we see Him prepare them for His subsequent departure. We see the promise of the Spirit. We see His great high priestly prayer in John 17. And we see Him showing ultimately His love for His people and His work of salvation in His crucifixion. And so as we come to our passage today, we're going to focus on this first section of John chapter 13. And many of you, if you've looked at the heading in your Bible, you might recognize this passage, that it's a very familiar and beloved passage to many. It is, and this is not without good reason, it is the passage where Jesus washes the feet of His disciples. Right? Many of us are familiar with this passage. Many of us have read this passage in John chapter 13. But there's a fear when we come to passages that are familiar with us. Right? There's this fear of familiarity. That if someone asked you what this passage is about, you could say, da-da-da-da-da. And you've already had the answer, and you are so familiar with it that you haven't looked closely or understand the true heart of what the passage is saying. So this is always a fear when we come to familiar passages that we miss over what is really going on. And so as we look at this account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, what we're going to see today is not only the love and the example of Christ in washing the feet of his disciples, but we're going to see our great need to be washed by Christ. We're going to see our great need to be washed by Christ. That in this visible picture of the love of Christ in washing and cleansing the feet of His disciples, we're going to see our need to be washed and cleansed of our sins. And that this, this Gospel of Christ, is the only grounds and foundation of us sacrificially loving and serving one another. And so as we come to this passage today, we're going to see these things that is not first and foremost about what we do, but it is first and foremost about what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come down from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your holy and infallible word that you have given to us by which we might know the way of redemption that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might have hope and endurance as we trust in Him and motivation to love and serve one another. We pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You would illumine the eyes of our hearts that we might see and understand the truths of Your Word this morning, that You would write the truth of Your Word upon our hearts, and that we would come to find our only hope of salvation in Christ. We pray all these things in His name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning, three different headings. The first thing that we'll see in verses 1 through 5 is the love of Christ. We're going to see the love of Christ for His people. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 6 through 11 the washing of Christ the washing of Christ for His people, and then thirdly and finally in verses 12 through 17, we'll see the example of Christ. We see firstly the love of Christ displayed in verses 1 through 5. That as we've said, the twelve now are gathered in what we call the upper room. It is just Jesus and these twelve disciples. 
This is on the night he was betrayed. We see that John tells us that his hour has now come. The whole gospel has been saying his hour has not come. His hour has not yet come. He escapes death. He escapes arrest. He escapes stoning because his hour has not yet come. But John now tells us his hour has come. His hour has come. The time of his death is close at hand. But we see that in this setting, Jesus has gathered this kind of new messianic community around himself, himself and the twelve disciples. And even though he will betrayed, be betrayed by one of the twelve, we still see in our passage the profound love that he has for his own. If you look there at the second part of verse 1, it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. This should remind us of John's prologue all the way back in John chapter 1. In verses 10 through 13, it says, He came to the world that He made, and the world did not know Him. And then it says, He came to His own, referring to the people of the Jews, and His own people did not receive Him. But we see that in John chapter 13, that His own now has been transferred or transformed from a people according to the flesh that rejected him to now a people of his own according to faith. That those that have received him now by faith are now marked as his own. And we see that he loved them, not just at the beginning, but it says to the end. And as you go through John's gospel, you see this theme of the love of Christ and the love of God for his people woven throughout the whole thing. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So it's the initiation of the sending of the son is the infinite eternal love of God. It's the initiation of God's keeping power, right? We saw in John chapter 10 that none is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands because of the love of Christ. And we see here that this love is not only the thing that keeps Christ's people to the end, but it's the reason for this act of love and humility that our Lord is about to perform for his disciples. And so that leads us to our second point this morning, the washing of Christ. The washing of Christ. That we see in this passage an acted out picture of this love that Christ has for his disciples. An acted out picture of the love Christ has for his disciples. We see in verses 4 through 5 that Jesus rises from supper, he removes his outer garments, he pours water into a bowl, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, this would be shocking for many reasons. I'll just list three of them this morning. The first reason is that their feet would have been filthy, okay? This is first century culture. There's no indoor plumbing. Animals are the mode of transportation, and we all know what animals leave behind them, okay? So there's animal dung everywhere. People are stepping in the dirty streets. They have sandals. There's no closed-toed shoes. These people's feet are filthy. And yet we see our Lord stoop down and wash their feet. But secondly, this job of washing the feet was typically the role of the servant or the slave of the house. That this is not something that the average person does. It was something that the servant would typically do. And yet we see our Lord do it. But not only is Jesus 
not a slave or a servant of this house, we also see that he's their teacher. He's their rabbi. He's their Lord. This is a step double down, right? He's not just an average person. He is their teacher and Lord. And it's almost hard to come up with a parallel in our day what this would have been like. It, the closest thing I can think of is if the present, president of the United States came and did your laundry, okay? Or if the king of England came and did your dirty dishes. I mean, it's kind of hard to fathom how low and stooping our Lord is going in washing the feet of his disciples. And we see in verse 6, Peter objects to this. We see in verse 6 that Peter objects to this work of washing. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter doesn't get it. Peter doesn't understand what's going on here. How can the perfect Son of God stoop down and wash my dirty, stinky feet? How can the perfect Son of God do that? How can the same hands that multiplied bread and loaves, that cleansed the leopards, not leopards, (laughs) lepers, that cleansed the lepers, that healed a man of blindness, how can those same hands stoop down and wash my feet? And Peter objects. This cannot be. But our Lord says to him in verse 7, he answers him, what I am doing now you do not understand. He's basically saying, trust me, Peter. Trust what I'm doing. Don't ask questions. Trust what I am doing. But we see that Peter, <laughs> he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always, he's kind of the mouthpiece of the disciples. He's always speaking too much. Peter persists. And in verse 8, we see he says, You shall never wash my feet. Peter now is not just asking a question, he's indignant. You will never wash my feet. For Peter, this is a line too far. This is crossing the line. You are the teacher. I am the servant. You are the Savior. I am the sinner. This is not right. You will never wash me. This is a line too far. I am too dirty. I am too filthy. You will not wash me. But we see in our Lord's answer that there's much more going on than meets the eye. We see that what is going on in this picture of washing the disciples' feet physically is meant to point to something greater, and that's their need to be spiritually washed by Christ, to be washed in their very souls. Because Jesus says these words, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is not just saying, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're not going to be saved. He's saying this is pointing to a higher, greater reality. If I do not wash you, your soul, spiritually, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. This is an acted out picture of the need to be washed by Christ. Jesus is saying there's no other way to be cleansed. There's no other way to be made clean. That this is the whole reason, Peter, I came into the world. I came to save sinners. 
What do we read in Luke chapter 5? Jesus is meeting with the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees are indignant. They say, you should not be meeting with these people. And what does Jesus tell them? It is not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to cleanse and purify sinners. Not those who think they have everything together, not those who are self-righteous, but those who know how sinful they truly are. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you need to be cleansed by me, Peter, and if you are cleansed by me, you are completely clean. And so we can see how these words of our Lord point to His work on the cross, that what our Lord is going to do, that to be washed by the blood and Spirit of Christ is to be completely clean. It is to have our sins forgiven. It is to have our consciences cleansed and purified because Christ poured out His perfect spotless blood in the sacrifice of Himself on the cross. He is able to cleanse and purify filthy and unworthy sinners, washing them of all their sins, past, present, and future. And this is what we sang about this morning. There is a fountain (laughs) filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What did David cry out in the psalm? He said, wash me and I shall be clean. (laughs) He knew that this is the only way I'm going to be clean. If you wash me, Lord, if you wash me, I will be clean. My terrible sin that I've committed, adultery, murdering someone, will be cleansed because it is you that cleanses me. And this is what Christ has done for us in the Gospel. Washed us of our sin, cleansed us of our iniquity, purified us by His perfect blood. And so as we come to the third point this morning, the example of Christ, we see that it is only after we understand and see rightly what God has done for us in the Gospel that we can rightly see Christ's example in this passage. That if He who was perfect and without blemish came to wash filthy sinners, not only their feet, but also their sins, How much more should we who are undeserving and unworthy out of thankfulness and gratitude stoop down and serve one another in self-sacrificial love? What does Jesus say in verses 13 through 15? He makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. If I, your teacher and Lord, have done this, how much more should you How much more should you? That as believers, our charge is love. Our charge is love. Humble, meek, lowly, self-sacrificial love to one another. We are called to love one another with this kind of love. True brotherly affection. Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought but genuine care and love for one another, seeking to humble ourselves in service to one another, stooping down and bearing with one another sins and shortcomings. 
because Jesus says here to wash each other's feet. But I think there's a great irony with this passage and how this passage has been interpreted in our day. That many have used this passage in John 13 to justify a third ordinance of the church, foot washing. They've taken this passage very literally, and they've sort of instituted this thing that before you come to the Lord's Supper, everyone washes each other's feet literally, and they come to the table of the Lord. But the irony is that in performing this act literally and physically, some are actually missing the whole point of this passage entirely, which is true, genuine love for one another that it is entirely possible to go through the motions of an external ceremony like foot washing, but actually lack true brotherly love for one another. In fact, there are countless empty deeds that we could all perform simply going through the motions that do not come from a true heart of genuine love and brotherly sacrificial care for one another. And sadly, Many churches, in thinking that they have obeyed this command and performing an outward ceremony, have actually lost their genuine love and care for one another and forsaken the whole point of Christ's command. Becoming nothing more than religious social clubs united around political affiliations, cultural preferences, and theological similarities, but lack true, genuine love for Christ and His church. And so, the drift in this direction is always a danger for us as believers. Why? We live in a fallen world, and we worship with other sinful people. And so, the drift is always going to be to separate, to go through the motions, to go through external outward ceremony, but lack true, genuine love and care for one another. And so the question that we need to ask is, how do we actually obey this command of Christ? How do we actually obey what God's Word says here in John 13? And the answer is not by empty ceremony, but by true, genuine, self-sacrificial love for one another. Laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the faith, loving one another, outdoing one another in love and good works, stooping down, humbling ourselves, and caring for each other, showing hospitality to one another. I love what one pastor said. He said, it is by showing love for the one you can see that you demonstrate your love for the one that you cannot see. That it is by our love for one another that Christ says that they will know our love for God forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Sometimes this looks like letting love cover a multitude of sins. Sometimes it looks like going to a brother or sister in humility that has sinned against us and humbly seeking to be reconciled to them. This is the example that Christ has given to us. And I love what Martin Luther had to say about this passage. He said, foot washing is not about the water. (laughs) I love that. Foot washing is not about the water. He said, if you want to follow Christ's example and wash your neighbor's feet, then humble yourself. Using all your gifts and graces, not for your own benefit, but for the good of your neighbor, excusing their shortcomings and helping them. 
But then he says this, but you will think, if only this person did not have such and such a failing, I would gladly associate with them. (laughs) How often do we think like that? If only this person was better, then it would be easy to be their friend, right? If only this person wasn't so sinful, then I would love them. If only this person had better theology, then I would care for them. If only this person wasn't so messed up, then I would help them. We think like that. It's so easy to think like that. But we read in 1 Corinthians 13 that love bears all things. Love endures and hopes all things. Obviously, there are sins and there are doctrine that we must separate over, but I think far too often we are quick to disassociate, disfellowship, and divide instead of bearing with one another. And Martin Luther closes like this. He says, this is what foot washing really means. (laughs) When you see the failings of your brothers and sisters, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, fellow members of your church, your pastor, your friends, he says, bear with them and help them. This is how we obey the command of Christ. Bear with your brothers and sisters and help them. That this is what marks the people of God, and it is founded on only the washing of Christ in our souls. And so as we walk away from this passage, only two things to contemplate this morning, and the first one is this, the absolute necessity of being washed by Christ. The absolute necessity of being washed by Christ. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, if I do not cleanse you, if I do not purify you, you have no share with me. That we must be washed by Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way of cleaning up ourselves, making ourselves look presentable before a holy God. We must be washed by Christ and His blood. We must be justified by the work of Christ alone. Philip Melanchthon said this, this is the scandal of the cross, that the righteous one who knew no sin would become sin on the cross, identifying with sinners. He has done this work for us, and this is our great hope. And that as believers by faith, we can know with confidence, assured of our pardon, that Christ has washed us. He has cleansed us. He has purified us. We are clean, not in and of ourselves, but given the pure white garments of the righteousness of Christ. That even though we are filthy in and of ourselves and have actually earned the opposite, Christ has taken our sin upon Himself so that we might be cleansed and purified. And this is not only this one-time act of justification, but it's the continual work of God in sanctification. And we see that alluded to in verse 10. Some people get really torn, bent out of shape about this part. It says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Many commentators will say that this, there's a one-time act of justification. We don't need to be re-justified. But this picture of having our feet washed regularly is pointing to our need for sanctification, for daily cleansing and renewal by the Spirit. 
So we need to be washed by Christ. We need to be continually washed and purified by the Spirit of Christ. But the second thing we need to see this morning is that it is only after we see this, it's only after we see the grace of God in the Gospel that we can actually obey Christ's command and love and serve one another. It's only after we've seen what Christ has done for us that we can love and serve one another sacrificially. Or we could say it like this, that Christ first washing us is the only grounds and motivation of us washing others' feet. It's the only grounds. That to do any other thing, to serve others out of selfish gain, or to think that you will earn something for it, to think that you will be justified before a holy God because of your work, is to flip the gospel on its head. It's to make righteousness something that we can attain. It's to turn the gospel into legalism, moralism, and unrighteousness. But we see that when we see this rightly, that the gospel of God is not work to earn righteousness, it is Christ has earned righteousness for us. Now live for Him. That the gospel is what Christ has done for us. He has washed us. He has cleansed us. He has done it all. We don't deserve it, and yet He freely gives it. And now, out of gratitude and thankfulness for what He has done for us in washing our sins, we can bear with one another, help one another, and love and serve one another out of a heart that's been changed and made new. This is our hope this morning. This is what we look to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Christ, that in this passage we're reminded of how unworthy we are, that often like Peter we can say the same thing, surely you could not wash me. Surely you could not cleanse me from my iniquity, from my sin. My sin is too great. My shortcomings are too many. There's no way you could ever wash me. But we see in this passage that our hope is only found in the washing of Christ and the washing of our very souls. That because of the work of the gospel, because of the work of what Christ has done, promised in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will put my spirit within you. I will give you a new heart. Because of the new birth from above, the washing of regeneration, as Titus says, we have hope. We have confidence that you are able to cleanse and purify us. And so as we come to you this morning, we come resting in the finished work of Christ alone. But we don't end there. We don't, we don't leave and go off into a monastery never to see or hear from another person again. We are welcomed into the body of Christ where we are called to love and serve one another, stooping down, bearing with one another sins and shortcomings. We are all sinners. We will all sin against each other in this room. But you call us by your grace to forgive, to bear with one another, and to endure all things for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So we are weak, Lord. We, we are very weak this morning, and we need your help, Lord. By your Spirit, strengthen us for this work 
that we might be cleansed and purified and so care for and give of ourselves for our brothers and sisters in the faith. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.